Ah, it's just so good to worship the Lord, right? To be able to gather together like this, whether we're in person or whether we're in our living rooms online, to just be able to, to take a little bit of time and just focus our hearts and our minds on Jesus. And so I hope you were able to, to just take some time to do that. Uh, I hope you're able to take time to do that each and every day. Actually, I hope that each and every day is saturated in praise and worship and that the rest of your day just gets in the way of that. Right, Because that's, that's the way that, that the scriptures would actually talk about what our relationship with Jesus should actually look like. And so we've been sifting through, we're in week six of talking about this concept of love. So we're going to talk about love this week, and we're going to talk about love one more time next week, and then we're going to switch uh, into a Christmas theme uh, series. But the kind of love that, that we've been talking about over, over the past five weeks or so, is what in the Greek they call agape love. Agape love, folks, is the deepest, most honest kind of love in the Greek language. It, it's unconditional in nature. It's unearned, and it's often not even deserved by the one who's receiving it. This is the kind of love, folks, that Jesus Christ gives to his, gave to his disciples, to, to those living in the margins of society at the time of Christ. He, this is the kind of love that Jesus gave to the drunkards, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. They all experienced this agape love that flowed out of Jesus Christ. It's the same love that he offers to each of us today through his death and his resurrection on the cross. You see, agape love is, is essentially the hardest kind of love to receive. It's, it's a hard kind of love to give, but it's also a hard kind of love to receive, mostly because often it doesn't make any sense. And as we've been kind of unpacking uh, this concept of love, one of the things we love as human beings is to try to make sense of things. And when something doesn't make sense, we don't know what to do with it, right? We want our sort of black and white world where we have right and we have wrong, and there's no ambiguity in the midst of that. And so we struggle with this concept of agape love because it doesn't make sense to us because it's not rooted in our emotions or in our logic. You see, agape love is sacrificial and radical in nature. The church struggles with this, this agape love. We struggle to receive it, to live in it, and to express it to others. And because we struggle with this, we've, we've turned it into all kinds of things that frankly, folks, are really just not that loving. This is the tension that we now live in today. The church is called to see all of humanity through the lens of Christ. That's what scripture says. Which means that we see all people as made in his image, having infinite worth in the Father. Yet we seem, to, we seem to spend more time trying to name sort of what is right and what is wrong, turn everything into black and white. We spend most of our time in conflict around human sinful need to have, the human sinful need to have power and control. 
And we spend so much time trying to see the world as black and white when scripture actually says there's ambiguity to the world that we live in. Our world is full of mystery. Christ is full of mystery. We only know pieces of the story. We won't know the fullness of Jesus until we're with him one day. This problem, folks, it it, it isn't new. This isn't something unique to Evergreen or to Norfolk County or or even to North America. It's a little bit more dominant specifically in North America because I think we get caught up in the world and our churches function within the world rather than uh, separated from the world the way the scriptures call us to. But this problem, it, it isn't new, which is exactly why the Apostle Paul is addressing in this letter to the church in Corinth this concept of love, the challenges that they're having. You see, love is a central piece of our understanding and receiving of the good news of Jesus Christ in our lives. God shows his love to us through his son who gave his life for us on a Roman cross so that we could experience this agape love of the Father. And yet, we miss it. We totally miss this significant central theme that opens the door to knowing and living our lives like Jesus. You see, the Corinthian church was just like us. They, they had good intentions. They often thought that they were, that they were doing the right things. I'm, I'm sure that they often felt that their actions toward others were very loving and very sacrificial. But as we see in this passage, Paul sees things a little bit differently than they do. And often, folks, this is how it is, isn't it? When someone is able to look from the outside into the church's culture, Those folks looking from the outside in notice things that we ourselves don't notice. This is actually, uh, uh, there's been psychological studies on this. There can be a table leaning against a wall, and a visitor will notice that table and wow, they're messy. And all of the members are like, what table? We don't notice our actual reality because we, we just struggle with a lack of self-awareness. We really do. We're creatures of habit. And so we become uh, internal, like like internal thinking instead of external thinking. This This is Paul. Paul's that guy from the outside. He's planted this church, but now he's outside of this church. And he's from the outside looking in to the life of the Corinthians. And so he's writing to this church that he planted, that he, that he think, a church that thinks it's pretty Jesus-centered. They've got things figured out. They're boasting about it, actually. But in reality, folks, they're more inward-focused than they are outward-focused. They're, they're more just doing things for themselves than they are reaching those who Jesus reached. This concept of agape love, scripture says, is the single most important marker of how the church is called to live in a society that is saturated with evil. 
So in today's passage, you can open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13 if you haven't done that already. In today's passage, Paul is going to address his final thoughts on what love is not. And so he started with what love is, two things, and then very quickly jumped into what love is not. So let's quickly recap that 1 Corinthians chapter 13, just verses four to six. There's actually seven verses, but he shifts back into what love is again. So uh, he says, first of all, love is patient. Love is kind. That kind of sets the stage. Without patience and kindness, you're going to struggle with love. Now he shifts. He says, it does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It, it doesn't dishonor others. Love is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love, Paul says, does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. That, that's our passage for today. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. Folks, love loves the truth. <laughs> right? Love loves the truth. Love does not like evil or wrongdoing or injustice. Love seeks what is truth and makes the wrongdoings and injustices of our world right again. In order to understand this passage, we've got to take a, a, a bit of a glimpse at who the Corinthian church was. But I want you to see us in this too. You see, the city of Corinth was historically an extremely evil place, a very worldly place, a, a, a place of a lot of pagans. There were, there were all kinds of things in Corinth that were wrong and were evil, but were a normal part of life. They, they were literally a hub for some really interesting idol worship. Everyone in Corinth, in one way or another, would identify themselves as spiritual in a sense. They all worshipped something. And I would say that in our world today, everyone in our world worships something. I don't think atheism exists. I think the worship of atheism is worship. But everybody's worshipping something. It's often just self And that's how Corinth was. They were very spiritual, but skewed. Skewed toward these many pagan gods, these different gods that they would serve. They loved their idols. And they placed so much misguided faith in things that were full of superstition and evil. The, the sexual immorality in Corinth was rampant. I would say it's rampant today. It was so rampant, but yet considered completely normal and acceptable. This is the background that these early converts to Christianity came from. It's important to read it through that lens, right? These are, this is the, the world that these Corinthian people were, were growing up in. This is the world that they came from, and they were having some challenges around shaking their old ways and being formed into their new lives in Christ. Essentially what was happening is they had all these different mixed teachings. They had learned from Jesus, from Paul, from Apollos, from Cephas, and then they had their pagan ways. 
There are other forms of spirituality and superstition and beliefs. And they kind of begin to, to intermix all of these different things into one. So instead of dropping old self and becoming new self, they kind of like had certain things that were new, but had plenty of things that were still old. Does this sound familiar at all? This, this caused all kinds of misguided problems within the life of this church, so much so that they would often, Paul says, rejoice as a church over things that were blatantly wrong and ethically challenging. They were failing to recognize sin all around them, sin embedded in the life of its church, the way their church made decisions, the way the church expressed love. And instead of recognizing this sin and correcting this sin, they would would glorify it or they would sweep it under the carpet, so to speak, kind of pretend like it's not there. For example, one of the things Paul names is that they are tolerating a man in their church who is willingly sleeping with his father's wife. Now, this isn't incest. Father was probably divorced or the guy's mother had died or whatever the circumstance, but there's nothing in the scriptures that explain to us that incest is happening. That's not what he's calling out. He's calling out the fact that this man is willingly sleeping with his father's wife. That's what the text tells us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, listen to how Paul addresses this issue. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Right away, hear this tone. It's actually reported. Like, I can't believe that a church would allow this kind of stuff to happen. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. So their, their, their sexual ethics are worse in the Corinthian church than the pagans all around them. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, it says, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? In our North American culture, we're like, (gasps) put out somebody, have somebody removed from the life of the church. We can't do such things. Once you're a member, you're always a member, right? But listen to what Paul says. Instead of mourning the evil that is happening, they're proud of it. Now, now I know a a lot of us take a step back and we look at this and we're like, there's no way anyone in church today would be proud of something like that in our world. Do you understand the definition of sexual immorality? Because a lot of people just jump to homosexuality and different things like that. Sexual immorality is things like lust, pornography, inappropriate thoughts, about someone or something. Jesus says that you have committed adultery when you even have lustful thoughts in your mind. And the church is being proud of these things or just not talking about these things. Folks, it wouldn't take me long to show you that a lot of churches today 
deal with this exactly like the Corinthian church did. When it comes to things like sexual immorality, we often choose to hide it or ignore it. Sweep it under the carpet until we no longer can anymore because it's now been exposed. It's wild how much evil the Christian church lives in and is actually proud of. In today's culture, this is very subtle. Like things like greed, dishonesty, pride, all of these things we often tolerate or ignore or even call wisdom. Like how churches make financial decisions, for example. Are we doing it led by the Spirit, placing our whole trust in God? Or do we make business decisions based on greed and human wisdom? Are we cheap? Because we're cheap in our own life. Or are we functioning by faith and generosity? We ignore these things. We don't pay any attention to these things in the North American Christian church. Evil is so subtle, folks, and yet it saturates our lives. This is exactly why Paul is addressing this. There's another example in the, in the Corinthian church, and it's around how they're practicing the Lord's Supper, how they're gathering together and doing the Lord's Supper together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 70 to 22, he says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. Have you ever taken a step back and pondered that thought? Could our gatherings, could our meetings be doing more harm than they're doing good? Could that be why the marginalized are not sitting beside you right now? He says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. (laughs) So right away, he's saying, he's establishing, there's a problem here. You're coming together and you're not unified. There's disunity amongst you. There's divisions amongst you. And he says, to some extent, I believe it. I'm kind of not surprised. No doubt there have been differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. So then when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. They think it is. He says, for when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. You see, when the people, when the Corinthian church was gathering together, it had become all about them. And they had created separations in their church. The rich, the poor, though the rich got to celebrate communion and eat feasts and drink, and the poor walked away hungry. The people were dishonoring God to the point of including sin of gluttony and drunkenness. Has anybody ever been to a church potluck? I've been to church potlucks where, uh, you know, I'll get talking to people and different things like that. And by the time, you know, the end of the line comes, 
Someone is already coming for their seconds and others haven't even had their firsts. I've been in church potlucks where people are coming for their thirds and people haven't even had their firsts. Gluttony is like something in the life of the church that we just graze right over and embrace in our culture. And some of them in the, the Corinthian church are, because are, they're drinking real wine, right? So they're, they're down in it pretty good, right? Like we don't have that problem with the Welch's grape juice. Now, notice how subtle this is though. They think they're doing the right things. The church thinks that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, that they're practicing their faith in a healthy way. But the reality, Paul says, is you're actually embracing evil and you're not even noticing and you're embracing it even in the midst of your worship services. So Paul has to combat this, and he chooses to to correct it within his teaching of what love is and what love isn't. You see, Paul says love does not delight in evil. As a matter of fact, love hates evil. It loathes it and does not, it loathes it so much that it wants to fight against evil, not just ignore it. Often we let evil exist and we do nothing about it. Love wants to do something about it. Folks, it's not loving if we're allowing evil to exist in our midst. Yet we do it. We do it all the time. Every time we walk past a homeless person and we judge them before we know their story, every time we hoard our money for our own prosperity instead of being generous, the scripture says you're embracing evil instead of living in love. This is so saturated in our culture, isn't it? The way that we're structured in our world is to to be about self, right? And, And to make sure self is as prosperous as possible, then I'll consider being generous. Psalm chapter one gives us a proper view of what it is that we should be rejoicing in. Psalm one, first two verses. First Psalm, first two verses. This is the way David kicks it all off. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. But those who delight is, but, but whose delight, sorry, is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it, who meditates on his law day and night. Isn't that interesting? Like not who meditates on it for three minutes in the morning over a coffee. Meditating on it day and night, right? The, 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 the Jews had all kinds of different ceremonies of how they would do this. They would even attach scripture to their foreheads in a little box to try to get it into them, right? To get it into their hearts, to meditate on it day and night. Those who are living their lives in the love of God and in turn loving others in the way that God calls us to hate evil. They notice it 
and they hate it, and they combat it with truth. Now, that statement gets interesting in the North American culture of the church because we take the word truth and we saturate it with pride and power. When we talk about scripture, the truth is about delighting in God's way. Delighting in the ways of Jesus. And so truth, if you're living in the truth, you're living like Jesus. Who did Jesus interact with? The scriptures say that that, that, that is truth that we should be saturating our lives in the reality of who Jesus was and is. The psalmist says to meditate on that day and night, so much so that your life is just living saturated in the word of God, in who Christ is. So if you see the word of God and it doesn't line up with the person of Jesus, you're seeing the word of God through probably a lens of sin rather than love. You see, folks, this is why we struggle to even notice evil. We struggle to know the truth of Jesus Christ and to surround our lives with that truth. Psalm chapter 5, verse 4 says, For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. You see, the God who is loved delights in what is true and just. He loves us, and his desire for us is to know the truth. And when we know the truth, we go against evil. Psalm 51, verse 6. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. You see, folks, living a life of love, hating what is evil and loving what is right, is what the scriptures call faithfulness. God calls us to be faithful, and he is also faithful. That's why God doesn't simply ignore our sin because he loves us. In fact, he came up with a solution for our sin. He provided us a way to be free of sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the thing we profess as the Christian church. It's what Christian means, Christ-like. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, John says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, true love rejoices in what is right and rejoices in what is good. Anything that covers up sin or seeks to justify wrongdoing is the polar opposite of godly love. Love does not sweep sin under the rug. Love does not try to find ways to get away with bad behavior, and it does not put up with injustice. Instead, love treasures truth. The truth is Jesus. I know the word truth has a lot of meaning in our world today. When you hear the word truth, the truth rests in Jesus Christ. That is the only place that we will find truth. 
And when we find that truth, we celebrate good behavior and we promote virtues. Folks, true love has nothing to hide. Think about that. Often we're all hiding something. But if we're functioning in true love, it has nothing to hide. Further, what he means by to not delight in evil, that's the way that it's phrased in the NIV, it carries the idea of, of not gloating over someone else's guilt. This is important because we often do this, right? We think we're righteous and then we kind of think ill of the unrighteous to use Christian-easy language. I, I used to think you Christians were really strange. Some of the ways you say things and word things, and as a person who didn't grow up in this looking in, I'm like, man, they're weird. They're not living most of what they say. They're, they're often judgy and full of hypocrisy. and Like, this is just weird. But when you're in, you don't see any of that. You just walk past the table, right? You don't bother to clean it up. We're not to delight in evil. You see, it's common for people to rejoice when an enemy is found guilty of a crime or caught in a sin, but that's not love. Love rejoices in the virtue of others, not in their vices. I'm going to say that again. Love rejoices in the virtue of others, not in their vices. Sin is an occasion for sorrow, not for joy. Basically, to exhibit God's kind of love, we must have God's perspective on sin and righteousness. This is why Paul sees this as so radically important. The better that we understand love, according to the Apostle Paul, the more we will sorrow over the evil in our world and the closer we will draw to God. The more we love the truth, the better we can love those around us. The more we know God's truth of love, the more we will hate sin, the more we will notice sin. We will be not capable of walking past someone without wanting to help. Because we'll hate injustice. When we're truly living a loving life, we can't help but notice all the evil around us. We can't help but want to change it by replacing evil with love. Folks, the church is called to to represent that the church is called to represent that agape love to a broken world. Agape love, unconditional. It's not asking for love in return. That's what we do, right? We make love a commodity. I'll love you with the conditions of this attached to it. Agape love is unconditional, and it's exactly what the church is called to, to love one another unconditionally, to love the world unconditionally, simply by, simply by just first showing it amongst one another and then sharing that, letting it overflow out of us to the rest of the world. That's how we live in the truth in a world that is broken. If you're going to get anything out of this 
talk this morning. This is what I want you to get, just as Tamil's going to join us. Love hates sin. And love does something about it. It stirs up a divine discontent that causes us to act. Whether it's in our lives or in others that we see around us, in the injustices of our world, the church can't help but do something about it when the church is functioning in love.